The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is my faithful compatriot, William Thrasher. Hey, why don't you pick something out and I'll go get you some ice cream. This ice cream looks delicious. I love the pistachio with extra dots on top, please. That's a fun thing to say is Bronson, pistachio. Yeah, it, he has quite the unique uh, unique cadence. Sprinkles. Uh, give us some sprinkles. I like the periwinkle myself. Yeah, the, the pea, something about the peas in Death Wish. Um, we were talking about Death Wish 2. As the poster says, Bronson's loose again. Uh, this is directed by Michael Winner, who also directed the first film. Came out in the year I was born, in 1982. So, uh, eight years after the first film, uh, produced by the infamous uh, Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, Written by David Engelback, based on the novel by uh, Brian Garfield, or based on characters uh, by Brian Garfield, starring Charles Bronson, Jill Ireland, who's his wife, Vincent Gardania, um, and a young Lawrence Fishburne. Music by Jimmy Page, cinematography Thomas Dill Ruth, and Richard H. Klein. And yes, uh, that Jimmy Page, the Led Zeppelin Jimmy Page. That's right. Uh, and uh, off a budget of $8 million, this made 16.1 in the domestic box office. So this was highly, highly profitable, especially for Golem Globus. And they kept on pumping out Death Wish sequels, as we'll talk about in the weeks to come. Uh, well, you so, can tell this is a Golem Globus movie through and through. Yeah, and um, I was looking at the box office uh, domestic, meaning U.S. and Canada, for 82. Where do you think Death Wish 2 places on there? Uh, 17th. 48th. Ooh. Even then, it was still, you know, considered... Successful. So, some movies it did better than uh, Grease 2, hmm. um, Secret of Nim, Halloween 3, uh, Beastmaster. I mean, more than Don Coscarelli's Beastmaster. Um, but movies that were slightly above it were, were sort of more like art house stuff, like My Favorite Year. Uh, but then you also have like Creep Show, uh, Pink Floyd the Wall, hmm. the, the Cheech and Sean movie Things Are Tough All Over, which is a terrible name for a Cheech and Sean movie. <laughs> and in 82, in case you're wondering, the top three films were E.T., Tootsie, An Officer and a Gentleman. Number four is Rocky Three. Number five was Porky's. Hmm. Okay. Por- Porky's was a was a surprise hit, we should say. You know, at the local used movie shop, they had the Porky's trilogy on sale for five bucks. I should pick that up and we should cover that on the show at some point. You know, I think um, we should. That, yeah. That 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 film was a was a revelation for certain people of a certain age. Not us, not us at all, but certain people. Yeah, Revenge of the Nerds I was familiar with, but that was often spoken in the same breath as, as uh, Porky's. Um, hair pie, indeed. Okay, speaking of hair pie, Death Wish Two. It's a terrible. Uh, <laughs> God, the rape scene in this is so hard to watch, and I only watched the R-rated version. There's a, a European cut that has an extra minute or so. Um, that well, uh, I guess I got to ask: Do we just want to get that out of the way, or do we want to do uh, this in chronological order as we usually do? No, we should do it in chronological order. I mean, th- th- these Death Wish films, th- I guess after the first one, th- are typically not that much about the plot. Uh, but this is, a, I think, a pretty nasty picture. And I, I, I'm a pretty open-minded person, but there's um, th- th- even doing the research for behind the scenes and stuff uh, make this a. I, I, I don't know, like a, a trash in all sense of the words. Uh, Death Wish 2, I have not seen on TV. I'm very curious as to how you would do a TV cut of this. Um, it's about uh, 45 explicit, minutes I think, long. Than the first film. Yeah, about five minutes long with a lot of commercials for the kids. Um, yeah, Death Wish 2, the first time I watched it was uh, about a year ago. I picked up all these on DVD and was watching, did sort of a marathon because the new one was coming out, or the remake rather. And um, yeah, just. 
I felt like I had to take a shower after watching this movie. I don't know. Like, I, I rarely say that. I can take a lot, but there's something especially nasty about this picture. Yeah, I, I don't know when I, like, when I first saw this. Like, the first time I know I saw this from beginning to end was yesterday when I watched it for this recording. And yet, I recognized everything on screen. I must have seen this before, but I have no idea where or when, which makes me think I, I'm, if I saw it at all, and those weren't just phantom memories, I must have been way too young to see this film. Sure, and I, I do think this is something where, um, kind of like people say, you know, Friday the 13th really became Friday the 13th with Part 3. In a way, Death Wish really became Death Wish with Death Wish 2. This is a more simplistic movie than the first one. Oh, yeah. And I think when, um, I mean, in this one, unlike the first one, he actually goes after the people that perpetrated the crime that, that kicks everything off. Uh, and that's and that is so weird. And I, uh, strangely enough, I feel like that's the only thing that keeps this movie bearable, uh, you know, regardless of, of, of you know, the, the ethics of redemptive violence. He does at least bring his own brutal justice to the people that have wronged him and his family. Unlike in the first film where where Jeff Goldblum is never seen or heard from again, uh, Lawrence Fishburne keeps coming back until he is dead, dead, dead. Right, so Michael Winner um, directed the first film. As we mentioned, he had a, a long history of working with uh, Charles Bronson. Um, f- when he was casting the, the, the bad guys who uh, rape and uh, inadvertently sort of... not in, I don't know. You well, know, they commit, they, they they're rape, responsible for all sorts of human depravity. We'll just put it like that. Sure. Right, they rape the maid and they rape the, the daughter. Um, kidnap and rape the daughter. Those are fun things to say at nine and it was six in the morning when i'm recording this uh, <laughs> this is how the sequel cast sausage gets made folks yeah okay so um in their audition process the actors were put in a room with the chair and they were told to rape the chair good lord yeah michael winner I, I haven't seen his other films uh, outside of the death wish one two and three but he had he had some fixation with rape in these pictures and really turned that stuff up to eleven and the uh, uh, explicitness and the, the throwing stuff in in the plot where it seems um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it revels in it but it certainly lingers on it. Well, that, uh, I mean that that's a key difference between Death Wish and Death Wish Two. You know, I talked about last week how I, I felt that the the rape scene in, in Death Wish was was brutal and not and not fetishized but in in this film it is depicted as brutal but because of the way the camera lingers on it and keeps cutting back to it i think this is a movie that's that's fetishizing that act it it certainly feels like it um and it's the same one, with of, the one of the two oh cuz like like in the in the original in the original film the original the original film does does seem to be judging Bronson's violence throughout the movie. This movie revels in it. This this movie is completely on Bronson's side, no matter what it is he's doing. Right. Um, one of the two DPs uh, quit the production the day of the rape scene because he was so disgusted with how Michael Winter was treating the actors and uh, mm. the, and all that stuff. Um, the. The book is called, oh, I think the book is called Bronson's Loose or something by Paul Talbot. It talks about the making of Death Wish 1 through 5, but it's really, really interesting. He got to talk to people, and in the sequel, he got to talk to uh, the the main actresses that were in this film about their experience. Um, and uh, the, even though, you know, it, it's a movie and you're filming these things and you agree to it, that doesn't mean it's not traumatic for the actors, uh, whether it's the actors playing the rapist or, or the the women getting raped, and, it, and even though it's all you know simulated, of course, um, that doesn't mean it wasn't a difficult thing for for uh, the performers to go through. Well, even then, like it, it, everything gets magnified when you have when you have someone behind the camera who who keeps goading people on and keeps you know, saying "keep going, keep going." It's there, there's some fucked up scenes in this movie, right? Yeah, after this movie came out. Um, that when he saw the European cut, uh, Charles Bronson was was disgusted and really angry and swore not to work with Michael Winter again, although he did work with Michael Winter again in Death Wish 3, um, which we'll talk about next week, which is notably more cartoonish in, in some respects. Um, but but anyway, that that's 
a lot of setup to talk about Death Wish 2, because um, it's, uh, whether it's good or bad, I remember that I have much more vivid memories from this film than the first one, uh, and I think it's, I don't, I don't know why they had to go there, and I understand you can use rape as a way to motivate a character, you know, to motivate revenge or whatever, but... The way this film does it, jeez. Um, well, okay. I, I, I guess yeah. we really we really ought to, to get into it because we're we're kind of we're, we're we're fixating on this, but then again, the movie is fixated uh, on this. Um, so 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 this this death wish we just you know we just open with your your bombastic golden globus opening credits over B roll of Los Stock Angeles, yeah. which which if you remember the previous film ended with Bronson moving to Chicago. Here he's in he's living in Los Angeles, which makes me think there must be a death wish one point five. <laughs> That takes place between these movies, where he got run out of another city for a series of murders. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you were to do, to do your own Death Wish sequel, and I guess we can talk about this and pitch a sequel. Maybe the the twist is like Paul Kersey is like Ted Bundy, where he goes from city to city, <laughs> just murdering people. But um, but you know, he's he's a successful yeah. architect in Los Angeles. He he's dating again. He's uh, he's he's, he's yeah. I like, like to mention he's he's dating uh, Jerry Nichols, who's played by his real life. Uh, wife, uh, Jill Ireland, who they acted and produced uh, several films together, and they do have a real chemistry on screen. Like I, I, I do like seeing their relationship play out. Yeah, he's um, he's smiling a lot when he's with her, which you don't see Charles Bronson do a lot in these pictures. <laughs> Not and since the vacation I, at the beginning of the first film. Exactly, and I, I do like how how they pick, even though she's played by a different actress. Um, you you have the continued thread of the daughter is so traumatized by her being raped and physically uh, assaulted uh, in, in the first picture that she can barely speak, but she's still being taken care of by a convent of nuns, and they're taking her out for for ice cream well, and going shopping and stuff at a fair. So I need I need to talk talk about the daughter because you know it, it's a big it's a it's a big thread in the first film before the character is completely forgotten where you know she she's so traumatized she she won't speak. But the way this movie is, Death Wish Two is so brutal to to that character. Um, to, to Carol Kersey, played by uh, Robin Sherwood, Be- and it, it starts right off the bat because you know she she still has difficulty speaking. She's in another uh, facility this time. Uh, there's some some doctors there, but the way she behaves and like the direction she's been given, she doesn't act like somebody who's dealing with trauma. She, this movie, she is framed like she has a developmental disability. That's true. I mean, she almost plays it so so broadly. It's almost like a very special TV episode of um, of someone with a special needs uh, sibling. You're right. It, it very very starry eyed, and I mean, frankly, acts like someone that's stupid, which I, I don't think she's supposed to be. Um, like I could, I mean, I want to give the people who made this movie the the benefit of the doubt, although I don't think they really deserve it. And that they're trying to have her recover some of her old innocence as part of her her path to recovery, but she she clearly hasn't recovered. Like she just she just wanders around wide eyed at everything as if she's never seen the world outside of the institution before. Yeah, and they it, treat her like a little kid, not like not not like Kersey's adult daughter. Yeah, no, very condescending. Uh, they're at this sort of street fair and i think the setup with the criminals in this is is pretty good because uh paul kersey i'm gonna go get ice cream he's gonna get ice cream and then these like thugs are just like running through and steal the his wallet and steal the 20 dollars out of his hands and and paul kersey is unarmed um which considering how many people he killed in the other films that's sort of i was sort of surprised i thought oh he's gonna shoot someone like two minutes into the picture (laughs) So I'll put that life behind me. And I think of the the gang members in in this film. They don't make nearly the impression I, I think as the trio did in the original, with the exception of Lawrence Fishburne. I think has these very interesting skinny sunglasses. We well, yeah, have uh, skinnies. They do a lot of giggling. Well, yeah, the skinny's '80s glasses. He's always laughing. He's the one with the lust for life. But then whenever he speaks, 
there has to be an official name for this, but you hear it in a lot of black exploitation movies, and you you hear it. I think he even does a version of this voice in Apocalypse Now, which came out was it three years before, where it's like it's 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 like the the guy the guy who talks like this, where his voice is just arbitrarily high. I know there has to be an origin for that. Sadly, sadly, I don't know, but that's just kind of his thing. Hey, man, we're gonna take your ice cream money. It, it's almost like the uh, the warriors come out and play sort of sing songy uh, yeah delivery. Um, but he he gets he gets robbed and he he give and Bronson gives chase, uh, which is is kind of kind of neat. And there's 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 a the violence that he clearly intends to do is much more personal because of that pursuit. Uh, you know, one of the thugs, you know, he corners in an alley. The thug pulls out a knife. Uh, there's a there's a a, 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 a you know a bit of a, a bit of a fight you know he uh, he he roughs he roughs the guy up um, uh, then but he, the guy doesn't have any money he just kind of sends him on his way but there, but this is one of the scenes where we realize the one of the corners cut because when when Bronson finally disarms the guy by tricking him into stabbing a cardboard box with his knife, Bronson just takes the knife and instead of using it he just throws the knife into the air and it never comes down. Right, it feels like it's missing a beat or two there in that scene. Like it doesn't, we don't hear a clatter of it landing somewhere. It's just like, he tosses it up, it's gone. I half expected him to pull that knife out of the sky in the third act. But, you know, he goes back to his girlfriend and daughters. They go, well, you can't believe it. I was going to buy us ice cream and I got mugged. Yeah, um... It would almost be funny if his wife gave him another 20 bucks and he'd get mugged again, but... <laughs> Just constantly, every time he yeah. has money, yoink! Well, if we write, anyway, our, if I, we write I, our Death Wish parody, uh, Death Blech I, for Mad Magazine, that's what we'll put in it. I can't imagine, I can't get told to say scream. That's when it's sounding like a Smithers, or a Burns impersonation. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but pl- please understand, listeners, we're using humor to get through this movie because we need it. Um, yeah. Uh, but- so, I mean, and they do set up uh, the housekeeper, Rosario. Um, they, they set up, okay, you know, they don't do a lot, but it, it's a nice scene with Paul Kersey smiling, talking to Rosario, telling her, like, oh, you know, my daughter, uh, she loves coming here for dinner because there's the delicious Mexican food you cook. Um and Rosario is played by Silvana Gallardo, um, who was an acting instructor at the time, and uh, but also an actress in her own right. And she does a real. Um, there, there's not much with her character, but I mean, she makes the character seem warm and friendly well, and. Well, the one in the little time she has. One thing this movie does really well is they make her really likable, really fast. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. just just with these little, just these little endearing things, these little flourishes. Although that that being said, as somebody who does a lot of cooking and cleaning, I feel like she doesn't know how to cook or clean. Like when she just douses a picture frame in like a cleaning foam. Or just like the way she's making the taco fixings, it looks like she's she's murdering that meal. <laughs> I mean, do you think Michael Winter was behind the camera, going like, "More toppings, darling. We're not getting this. We're not getting the scenes we need. More, top, <laughs> more toppings. The kids won't get it. You got to use three pounds of olives in the in the tacos." Which well, is barely putting tacos. toppings on. Like, and one of the tacos, it looks like she's putting raw tuna fish on it. Like, I don't know what. What that what meat that is, but it looks like raw tuna fish. It's just like whatever craft services had, that's what they made their tacos out of. That's like, that's like a hamburger helper Mexican cuisine. Oh god. I... But okay, you know, so... the crooks the crooks in this, they're 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 not they're not dumb. They get uh they get Kersey's non laminated California driver's license and use it to find where his home his home is, and their plan is presumably to you know, get home before he does, rob the place, but also when he comes home, rough him up for messing with one of their guys. But of course, uh, they find the maid, uh, and there is, as we we discussed earlier, there's a, a uh, brutal, protracted uh, sexual assault uh, scene uh, with uh, with the maid that goes from room to room. 
it's not just room to room. It's 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 full frontal nudity. It's the, the part that really got me is they have her walk on all fours like a dog. It, yeah, being it's extremely a, degrading. And it's and it's and it's and it's one and it's one of those things. Like I see that and it's like I don't like it's it's one of those things where I could totally believe the director's getting turned on. Uh huh. Yeah, and, and how it just sticks with it. Yeah, and that just that just that just f- f- seems really really skeevy uh, to me. But then you know Bronson and uh, his wife and girlfriend come home in the middle of all this. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's a fight, uh, and the crooks uh, run off with uh, with uh, Kersey's daughter uh, and take take her to an abandoned bowling alley slash beer hall. It's really weird the the location that they use. Um, and and then there, uh, Kersey's and this this is the other thing that drives me absolutely nuts is that they they. They sexually assault the daughter, but anytime they cut to the daughter's face, it looks like she looks happy. It's this weird, like she's so wide-eyed and innocent. It's like it's like they're framing it like on some level she's enjoying this. And that's really where I kind of lost sympathy with the people making the film. Well, the director was dating the actress that plays the daughter, if you want to add another layer oh, to Lord. that. Um um, and then how 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 does it end? Um, she jumps out a window and gets impaled on a uh, steel a steel fencing that's outside the building. I mean, I can believe that she makes the choice to kill herself after all the horrible trauma she's been through, not just once but twice. Um, I just I just find I just find it so I just find it so so unsatisfying because because the movie it it. The movie doesn't commit to things, and I and I feel like the the movie the movie wants to have it both ways. Um, the movie wants Bronson to be a person who's lost everything, so any amount of violence he uses is justified. But then also wants him to be sympathetic and have a love life and still have people to live for at the same time. So uh, we were talking before the show. You were watching the uh, Cisco and Ebert uh, episode where they talk about this film. Yeah, and I'm, f- I'm really I found curious that. How, how did they. Because uh, Ebert gave this a pretty negative review, but but uh, what, what was their some of their thoughts on the uh, their rape and violence? In this well, well, well not, not, neither one neither one liked it. They did feel that the the violence was too extreme. But one thing that they talked about they they raised a point of several times is when it comes down to it, this movie is a white guy murdering black and brown guys, and that's portrayed as as heroic because they, as as they do point out, like aside aside from Nirvana. The guy who goes by the name of Nirvana, like it's it it is all it is all uh, African Americans and Latinos that he's he's gunning down, and unlike the first movie, which showed how crime can affect all populations and all strata in society, um, this movie is all dirty underbelly, and that dirty underbelly is populated exclusively uh, exclusively by people who aren't white. Uh, I, I think I feel like the only. <laughs> The o- the only like uh, the Caucasian people we see operating on that level in this movie are all prostitutes. Sure, I I think that's a a good point. Well said. I, also, in this film, a big difference is, um, as we were hinting at in the beginning, you know, unlike in the first picture, he's directly going after. It was more of a direct vengeance thing, right? Where he's directly going after the people that uh, in this one uh, raped and murdered his maid and and kidnapped and uh, raped his daughter. Um, in this one, he sets up, you know, a base of operations. He wears his beanie as, as sort of a not very good disguise, and kind of, you know, kind of picks them off uh, one by one. And um, and that makes it a different sort of feeling. Like I don't, there there, there is something more satisfying uh, in that it's a plot that he's directly going after the people that did him and his family uh, wrong. Yeah, in the first film, he's just kind of looking for trouble, but here everything mm-hmm. is very premeditated and very planned out. And 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 yeah. I kind of love his shitty bat cave that he sets up for himself in that <laughs> flop house. Right. I I also really love they brought uh, Frank Ochoa back, played by uh, Vincent Gardenia. Yeah, who makes the mistake when he shows up of mentioning how close he is to retirement? Uh so you know he's not, and 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 I can't believe they were they were so cliche as to not have him make it out alive. Although I guess in '82 that wasn't quite a uh, cliche. But 
I did like I did like seeing him back in back in the game. Uh, he his his return to the film is very welcome. Yeah, he's uh, very strong in the movie. I think he gives uh, the movie more of a, a sense of of purpose, where you have someone tailing Kersey, because otherwise it gets very repetitive, right? Kersey sets up camp. He hunts dude one, he hunts dude two, he hunts dude three, all of which have, you know, different colorful names. Um, although, really, I mean, none, none of the criminals are really developed as characters. Such as, uh, so, Nirvana, Cutter, Stomper, Jiver, mm-hmm. Punk Cut. Right. Oh, don't you know me? I played Punk Cut in Death Wish 2. Yeah, that's right. Punk Cut. <laughs> one word. <laughs> but, um... So, oh, and uh, something else to point out from the Siskel and Ebert uh, uh, review on coming attractions or sneak preview for uh, for this movie. The first clip, clip they showed was the conversation between the police detective, police uh, commissioner from the first movie and the local uh, the, the local police commissioner from Los Angeles. And, and and they referred to it as the most boring scene of dialogue ever committed to film. There is something special about the old Siskel and Eberts when um, when they really hate a movie. The way they tore it apart was like, <laughs> I don't know, very witty. Like, I, I wish I could be that clever. When they were on point, they were really on point. Uh, and you you look at all the stuff going on with the film. I think some of the, the kills and stuff are, are kind of pedestrian, but I do think it gets very interesting uh, towards the end with Nirvana, where he's high on PCP, like stabbing cops and just acting nuts, and uh, Kersey tells him down to the hospital. I think that was a pretty one of the more effective sequences in the film. Well, you know what it is. That's the that's the only only uh, well choreographed action scene uh, in in this movie. All all the other action scenes seem so sloppy. And it it feels like what we see in the movie is everyone rehearsing their blocking for when they were for when they have film in the camera, but like people stand people stand in the open and get shot at at point blank range, and we see bullets impact all around them, but not on them. People are always crossing into other people's lines of fire. No one's no one's using the cover. Like people, their idea of cover is just kind of leaning gently against a pillar in a parking garage, not actually getting behind it. But that scene where he has, where he's on PCP and it takes 12 officers dogpiling on him to bring him down. That scene has so much manic energy. It's a delight to watch. And like all the flips and things are really exciting. I believe uh, Charles Bronson was maybe in his sixties when he he did this picture. I think it would, I think at this point he would have been in his, his uh, fifties. Maybe, Maybe late, late 50s. 50s, but but it, he kept himself in shape. I think he looks good. He's had, um, according to the that Making of book, Bronson's Loose, uh, Michael Winner said um, against his wishes, Charles Bronson had um, plastic surgery done, and that's why his face looks a bit puffy. Really? Yeah, wow. it's, it's pretty subtle. I think in, in the other films, he looks... Um, just has like that almost look of a cat with like the puffed out cheekbones with too much of the whatever injections they're doing on the face. Uh, but I think it's a it's a tasteful job for what little I know about plastic surgery. And, and uh, Charles Bronson can still do the action scenes at this point. Um, not, not that he has to. It's not like he's doing karate moves or anything, but some people like has Botox, physicality to him. But let me tell you, I'm, a, I'm, I'm old school. I'm a classic collagen man. How do you feel about um, the lip service they do to the love story in this? Because I, I think the ending is not nearly as effective as they're wanting it to be. Well, uh, so the, the the it's the problem with the love story is really the same problem with the politics in this movie. There's just enough of it that you know it's there, but they don't do anything with it. Like one of the first scenes is is his girlfriend doing an interview with like the mayor and it's about the death penalty and you know the the hypocrisy of killing people to punish people for killing people but that's it that's all that's all we're going to get we never see anyone like aside we never really see anyone comment on the ethics of violence beyond that because anyone everyone else we see uh is completely on Bronson's side and and it's the same thing with the romance. It's established early on, but then it becomes an afterthought. Uh, she's barely present, 
And what should be a huge emotional turning point when she discovers that uh, Kersey is the vigilante, and this is after he's proposed to her at this really cool-looking uh, Japanese restaurant. Um, you know, we see her. She's at his place. She takes off the engagement ring, puts it on the table, and leaves. And that should be a big emotional moment. But aside from her putting down the ring and leaving, she has no real feeling uh, of discovering that uh, her fiancé is a murderer. And Bronson does not seem to care at all uh, that she's left him. And, and that's the thing is, and they point this out on Siskel and Ebert as well, the movie doesn't end, it stops. Because, you know, he he's gunned down everybody who was responsible for the assault. He's gunned down a few extra people. Uh his boss at the architectural firm, uh, who's trying to be supportive of him, is like, you know, you don't, you don't get out, uh, out enough. We're having this get together. Why don't you come? Why don't you come meet me? I mean, he's like, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make an appearance. Yeah, I mean, what else are you going to be doing on a Friday night? And then it just shows shots of Los Angeles, and you hear guns, gunshots, which are it, presumably are him just going out and cutting people down. And the police department doesn't seem to care that they've got another vigilante on their hands. Yeah, it's um, a bit of an odd ending. Like, I, I like that they try to do something with that relationship because there, there is certainly a, a large amount of tragedy to Paul Kersey's character. And that, you know, in the first movie, it's it's the wife that gets murdered and it's sort of revenge for the wife. And in the second, well, it's not revenge really, but in the second movie, it's the daughter. It's like, where do you go from here as far as doing a sequel? And yet they did three more and a remake. The, the son-in-law? I don't know. I was actually, I was kind of <laughs> shocked that the son, the son-in-law is completely forgotten. Like, wh- I, I guess they got divorced if she moved to Los Angeles with Kersey. And I guess he's still in New York. I don't know. But like, I feel... Maybe it's an... Yeah, I don't... Maybe he got it annulled. I don't know what you what? do when you, you commit someone. Can you... Di- I guess you could divorce them while they're... Mentally incapacitated. I, I mean, if they're non, if they're non compass mentis, uh, I suppose so. But but yeah, like that, like the relationship between the son in law and the daughter, that was so strong in the first film. Like I, I really wish I could see that get resolved in in, in this film. You know, I, it's it's a shame that it's gone. Oh, hey, did you? So did you notice the really surprise cameo in this movie? Uh, no. Henny Youngman is in this movie as himself. When? It's near the end. Like, throughout throughout the movie, they, like, people turn on TVs. And, of course, Golan Globus isn't going to pay the rights for any actual TV broadcasts. So they're these weird composite shots of just whatever, I guess, B-roll Golan Globus had. And one of the last things we see, uh, it's in, I believe it's in Bronson's apartment, uh, the TV's on, yeah, and it's Henny Youngman on TV, just standing in front of a curtain, just doing doing you know one of his jokes. How odd. That being said, I like Kenny Youngman. I really love Borschbelt Borschbelt comedy, but I can only assume he's in this as a favor to somebody. Like it's so it's so quick. I don't know why he's in it unless somebody either really wanted to work with him or like he owed somebody a favor. Well, here, here's a story about, about this film. So um, Michael Winter is, you know, they want to do a Death Wish 2 with Golan Globus. Uh, Michael Winter did a lot of Golan Globus films, and uh, they're, they're starting to prep Death Wish 2, and Golan Globus approached Michael Winter and said, you know, we're starting to talk to Isaac Hayes about doing the soundtrack to this picture. Ooh. And Michael Winter was kind of pissed off because without his input, they're already trying to get a composer. So instead he said, you know what, uh, I'm not going to do Isaac Hayes. Uh, my neighbor is Jimmy Page. I'll just ask him to do the soundtrack. And that's what they did. And I, I think an Isaac Hayes soundtrack would have been uh, pretty interesting, especially coming off like the wacky, uh, not wacky is not the right word, the kind of disturbing jazz uh, from Herbie Hancock from the original. That Wow. I would, I would definitely love to hear what Isaac Hayes could have come up with. And, and like the, the Jimmy Page soundtrack for this, I don't Very like 80s. it. Well, yeah, and it, yes, lot, lots of lots of lots of synth, but like I don't like its faults. I feel like I can't blame on Jimmy Page because you know that that he can write music, he can play music. Um, I feel like it has to be res- uh, uh, the Golden Globus Canon Films or uh, uh, corner cutting because every piece of music it's it's just like a little sting, a little leap motif, um, a little music cue. And they all feel unfinished. 
they all feel like an instrument or two is missing. They all feel like they need some polish. Each one feels like, okay, this is the temp track. Uh, give me another week and I'll have the real full music for you. And they just went with the temp track. I was reminded a bit of like uh, the MIDI music in some of the old Police Quest games. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it, I think all the, all the synth, all the sort of... Um, like it's not up to the level of like John Hammer's work on Miami Vice, um, but it, it was just one of those things where it's like, eh, geez, okay, so this is what they're doing. All right, um, it, it, I don't like it nearly as much as the score to the first film. Apparently, in, in concerts, Jimmy Page will often do music from this Death Wish uh, two and Death Wish three scores, um, which is something. Uh, and and that the the radio interview at the beginning with the the wife and the the mayor of Los Angeles or whatever about the violence in the city and ethics is so ham fisted, even to the point where you go and see a uh, cursey and the maid in the, in the kitchen and the maid just like outright says like, yes, I agree. <laughs> it, it, it's really, um, really, really dumb. It, it, it makes like the naked dialogue in the first one where a character is like, I'm pro gun. I'm anti gun. Like they just, lay their opinions on the table and then don't really elaborate on it and it's like and and your point is and it's and you'll you'll hear if you haven't seen this movie and maybe you shouldn't see this movie when we get to sequel scene you will really hear how flat and boring a lot of this dialogue is yeah i can't wait uh so death wish 2 i give a sequel no to um i, I think the original one is a very good picture this one is I just it, it's like a pig rolling around in shit, and the movie is the shit. I don't know. That's a poor metaphor. It, it's <laughs> yeah. This this is not a good movie. This is highly disturbing. Part of me, I'm morbidly curious to see what is different in that extended cut, but I don't want to see this movie again. There is as as a lover of of great trash, and I'm not sure. I I, I feel so ambivalent about about this movie. Because I think I think it's an awful movie nobody should see, and yet this is the template for not only all the Death Wish movies going forward, but so many other revenge films. This is the Ur example, and it has value to cinema. If only, if only because of that, as awful as it is, um, I feel like I, I feel like it doesn't deserve a sequel. Yes, but I can't give it a sequel. No. But I guess I have to choose one. That's our policy, right? Yep. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to give it a sequel, yes, only because if this movie was new and fresh, I would want to see how much further down uh, downhill part three would go. Wow. And looking at Wikipedia, there's a pretty astonishing quote from the director, Michael Winner, about <laughs> Death Wish 2 um, by an interview he did at the time. Death Wish 2 was the same but different to the original. That's what sequels are. Okay, I'll go on. But I think he does have a point there in that some of the more successful sequels are the same but different. The audience wants some of the same things, but enough different stuff to make it kind of fresh. Uh, so Michael Winter uh, continues. That's what sequels are. Rocky 2, Rocky 3. You don't see Sylvester Stallone move to the Congo and become a nurse. Here, the look of L.A. is what's different. Besides, rape doesn't date. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, well, I guess that's that the, that's the movie encapsulated in in one quote. Then that's we we could have skipped this whole episode and just read that. Yeah. Um. If you want to look at supplementary uh, supplementary material, there's a really interesting about like 15 minute interview from a UK talk show where Michael Winner talks to um some some female guest trying to justify the rape in this movie, uh, and and it's. It's an interesting and pretty awkward watch. So there's one thing in this this movie that made me laugh out loud. Uh, toward towards the end, when, uh, this is this is of course when uh, the uh, pol- uh, the police t- t- uh, inspector from the first film uh, dies in a park where an arms deal is going down. The car with the weapons in it goes off a cliff, lands. There's a beat, and then it explodes in a huge fireball. I laughed out loud because that is shot so blandly, it reads like a parody of car-exploding scenes in action movies. 
Just you wait till next week, my friend. Oh, dear. Death Wish 3 has a lot of explosions in that same manner. Um, all right, well, let's do pitch a sequel. I had uh, had something in mind, so you think of uh, the end of this film, you think of Paul Carissi's failed, uh, you know, relate sort of relationships always seem to work out with people getting murdered. I, I, I would set a sequel maybe uh, 12 years in the future. And Paul Kersey had not only found another woman, but gotten married to her, and has, has sired a child. And um, while uh, him and his wife are doing a date night, and they have a babysitter watching his kid, and the babysitter and the child get raped and murdered. Yeah, I guess you'd have to do that, right? And then Paul Kersey and his wife go home, and they have a big, uh, big argument, like. I thought you, uh, you know, you cared about this family. You're, you know, you used to uh, be in the Korean War. You can't even defend everything. She, she's really going after him. So, the rest of the movie is is a court case, in which they're going through divorce court about him inappropriately hand, uh, defending his family when he wasn't there. Something irreconcilable differences of. Uh... It, it is irreconcilable differences, and uh, it's called uh, Death Wish Three: The Court Case. Splitsville, Daddy O. <laughs> All right, so I uh, didn't you sign the prenup? <laughs> I go peanuts for prenups. Check out these Bronson brand legal forms. Um. All right, so so my pitch is sequel. So one thing we we uh, we didn't uh, get a chance to talk about is is Nirvana. When, when the cops bring him down, he's ruled uh, non compass mentis due to his yeah. drug addiction, and he's put into he's put into I think it's the same facility that the daughter was into to to, to get treatment and recover, which may have more to do with Golan and Globus not wanting to rent a new location and less to do with any kind of symbolism or symmetry to the film. And he gets dispatched because Bronson pretends to be a doctor, gets alone with him in an electroshock room, and in the fight, he punches a machine and gets electrocuted to death. So my pitch of sequel is, oh, and an orderly figures out who Bronson is, but gives him a three-minute head start so he can escape, because the orderly, you know, again, everyone has to side with Bronson. So my sequel is Nirvana didn't actually die. Uh, He was just knocked into a coma. Well, he comes out of his coma, and now he wants revenge on Bronson. So my sequel to Death Wish is it's all going to be from the crook's perspective, but it's it's this, this brain-damaged uh, crook who has no fear, can feel no pain, uh, and who now has access to medical equipment because he pretends to be in the coma, he can t- pretends to stay in the coma, but every night he steals hospital supplies and goes stalking the streets. It's him stalking Bronson and everyone connected to Bronson. I'll assume Bronson's still in L.A. Maybe he started dating again. Maybe he has uh, he has a new family. But this killer is killing everyone in Bronson's life and tightening a circle around him. And it's finally going to end with a uh, what the hell a rooftop confrontation between Bronson and Nirvana. And there's going to be cameras there, police there. The whole world's going to see that Bronson is the vigilante. Um, Nirvana will die in that fight, but not before uh, he tricks Bronson into loudly confessing to all the other murders from all the other films. So it ends with Bronson in the lockup. And everyone in the lockup knows Bronson is the vigilante. So it, it ends on the, the, the grim note that Bronson might finally face real comeuppance for all of his murders. That's pretty clever in the title. Uh, this would be... Uh, uh, Death Wish, this will be uh, Death Wish 3. Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I really don't have a good tag for this. I guess it's just uh, just uh, Death Death Wish 3, uh, Punishment and Crime. Okay. Sounds good. So, uh, Crasher, I think you have a question for me. Yes, and that question is... What kind of quip should I say when I shoot you? Which, oh, God, the quip. The only quip in the movie. Goodbye. Uh, 
But, oh, no, my question is what you're watching. Yeah. Um, so I went out with friends to a theater um, last night. I, I've, uh, I'm trying to do, in the, the Portland, Oregon area, which is where I live, um, I've been doing these live sequel cast panels at different conventions, and I'm trying to do one on the X-Men movies at Rose City Comic Con. I'll nice. find, I applied for it way back in March. I'll find out if I get it um, in July. So hopefully we'll get that, but mainly to prep for that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone to the theater to see this. Um, I, I went to see X-Men Dark Phoenix, the um, the last of the Fox... Well, the new Mutants movie got delayed, but you know, out of the core X-Men in, movies, the last one of this, in the end of an era, so to speak. Yeah, how how is that? Because that's, that's, seri- that's a series that, like, I see every other film. Uh, <laughs> should, should this be one of the ones I see? I was looking through our archive, and I was really shocked to discover we have never covered the X-Men, and I can't think of why. And we haven't done the Marvel Cinematic stuff either. Well, I think it's because they're still making movies. We don't There's know so many of them. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. So, well, the Marvel stuff will never end, uh, at least until it becomes, like, grossly unpopular, which maybe might happen in five years. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, X-Men. Um, this movie, it just feels like nobody wanted to make it. Like, the performances are really flat. The storyline is bad. Uh, the director, Simon Kinberg, it's his first feature film, uh, but he, he has been co-writing X-Men films since X-Men The Last Stand. Um, and, and for my money, they would have been better stopping with these movies at uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. Mm. I have not seen Logan. I've heard that's a good one, but I, I consider those Wolverine movies are in their own timeline. Like they've... Um, there's a very funny meme going around of uh, Dark Phoenix is supposed to take place in 93, and they showed a picture of um, Michael Fassbender, who plays Magneto, and then next to it, there's a picture from the original X-Men, which came out in the year 2000, and it shows Ian McKellen, and it's like, he aged that much in seven years, but I think it's meant to be <laughs> different time. Like, if you try to take the timeline seriously in these movies, you're going to twist yourself in knots. Well, like, time travel shows up in, like, two of them, right? Uh, at, at least two of them. Um I, I will say with the way they do the Dark Phoenix in this film, they go to space a little bit, which is at least more lip service than how it was in the comics. Um, but it, it just felt really unnecessary. And it, I, I was like, you know, it's a movie. Uh, it it wraps some stuff up, which I guess makes it slightly more satisfying than X-Men, X-Men Apocalypse, which I thought was really, really pointless. So, don't go see X-Men Dark <laughs> Phoenix unless, you know, buy a ticket to a movie that's more deserving of the box office than sneak into Dark Phoenix. <laughs> that's my unofficial recommendation. And I'm not saying you should do that, but maybe do that. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I saw it on a Saturday night in Wilsonville, Oregon, which, which is not, it's kind of a suburb outside of town. Uh, less than two dozen people in the theater for a seven o'clock Saturday night show. Wow. Opening weekend. That ain't good, kids. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, I guess we'll see how, how many more they, they get out of the franchise before they completely they're, reboot it. Marvel is going to take a few years. I heard they're going to do a Fantastic Four movie first before doing the X-Men. Hey, um, fifth time's the charm. Yeah, I if you're going to do Fantastic Four, like make it like a 1950s period piece, I think would be sort of fun. But with X-Men... I don't want to see the origin of these 50 characters. With, even with Fantastic Four, I don't want to see these origins for the millionth time. It's like Batman. I, <laughs> you've done it so many times. Like, just do something fresh. Something. Don't do... Hell, I would even take an X-Men Zombies movie. That would be a hell of a way to end the franchise. Yeah. Uh, so, who knows? You know, you're going to... Um, I was kind of... I think on the Disney Plus streaming service or something, they're doing a what if uh, animated series. I I will believe it when I see it because I, I, we have been told so many spinoff series are in development, but I have yet to see a single scrap of art for, for or casting news for any of them. So I'll, I'll believe it when it gets to air. I always loved what if Wolverine fought uh, fought Conan. I thought it was a good one. What if a gamma bomb had spawned a thousand hulks? Yeah, um, at one point in the the two thousands, Brian Michael Bendis was. Um, they kind of revived it briefly, I think, for a, sort of like a half a dozen issues, 
And Brian Michael Bendis pitched, what if Kevin Smith finished a comic script on time? But they wouldn't <laughs> let him do that one. <laughs> they wouldn't let him do that one. Um, my, my favorite, and it was a joke, and not even in What If, but in uh, What The Marvel self-parody comic, they did they did a What If issue, and one of the What Ifs was, what if Peter Parker wasn't bitten by a radioactive spider? And it's a one-page comic where Peter Parker goes home and has dinner with Aunt May and Uncle Ben, and then goes on to graduate from college and lives a happy life. Yeah, that- there, there's a lot of validity to that. Um, all right. Uh, so what's something you've been watching, Thrasher? Uh, so I finally got to the end of the uh, HBO's Chernobyl miniseries. I've heard that's profoundly depressing. Oh, no, it, it absolutely is. But it, but in all the right ways, uh, like it, it really it really is sort of grim and frank in, in, in the ways that it shows uh, you know, the, the perils of, of radiation exposure. Um th- that you know that that being said you know i'm i'm not a physicist a physicist i'm not an expert on on uh nuclear engineering or radiation exposure or whatnot so i cannot say how how accurate this i can't say how accurate it is i just i don't have the knowledge base to judge but it all feel it, it feels true. It, it makes you feel like it's all one hundred percent true the way the way a good work of art can. Um, one thing that struck with me though, everyone smokes in this so matter of factly, and it just remi- it it makes me realize I am I am old enough to remember when everyone across the board smoked and but like yeah, I'm young enough in- that none of my friends smoke. <laughs> Right, not just in movies, but in real life. I recall on airplanes, people smoked constantly. Oh, we had smoking and non-smoking, but you're on a very contained uh, area in an airplane, right? So non-smoking doesn't mean that much. Um, And there's a sequel cast connection, because it was uh, created and written by Craig Mazin, uh, who who, uh, wrote A Hangover 2. Huh, of all things. Okay. Well, he has a really interesting filmography. He's done like a lot of really lame, really broad comedies, but a handful of really smart films, uh, like uh, like the specials, uh, and let me see the the specials I- identity theft. Interesting, yeah. Um, I think we have time to do one more. What you're watching? Uh, I, I was kind of uh, browsing for something sort of simple to watch. I was in a mood for a documentary. And I um, picked up a documentary I started watching 10 minutes of maybe two years ago and decided, well, I might as well finish this. Uh, This is directed by Rob McCallum. It's called Nintendo Quest, the most unofficial and unauthorized Nintendo documentary ever. Um, This is on Amazon Prime in the U.S. Uh, So what the the gimmick behind this one is there's a uh, a Canadian fella named Jay Bartlett, Hmm. and he's given the challenge... Uh, I forget why, but he's going to have 30 days to go across the United States and Canada and buy all 678 NES games. Huh. Kind of do a big road trip, go to used game stores, go to flea markets, and work deals, see what he can get. And the, the stuff of him on the road, I think, is... It's not the most compelling stuff, but it's it's okay. Um, it's it's more interesting where he goes to like he gets contacted by random collectors and goes in their basement and sees their kind of collections and and so forth. Uh, but for some reason, this film feels the need to talk randomly to people that have set world records in Nintendo games, and hmm. like it has all this stuff shoved in there that seems like you're trying to fatten it up to feature length, um, with just random Nintendo factoids. So so do you think so do you think that they just they they missed their target or or that for whatever reason his quest proved to be so uninteresting that they had to fill out the the documentary with something else. Um so the quest itself I don't think is a bad idea. That's an okay hook. I, I do think Jay Bartlett and uh, no offense meant to him but he just comes across as very flat and bland and kind of quiet. And so you you would yeah, I don't think there was enough there, there. But, you know, had they taken all this footage they must have filmed of him going from place to place across the U.S. and Canada, uh, you could have made that, I think, into like a six-episode YouTube series or something. Um, I'm not sure why it had to be done as a, a feature documentary. Because um, he does talk about, like, 
in Canada, the people working at the used game stores are like super polite, and in the U.S., like some of them are more like dickish. Well, have, having worked at one of those U.S. stores, you're not paid to be polite. Those those jobs right. are awful. Where every well, it, where it, yeah every priority is as far removed from moving games as possible. Well, and he's not going to a GameStop to be clear. He's going to mom and pop uh, use video game stores and uh, and things. Nice. But even then, you know, like he went to one where. And one of the more interesting things I think it focuses on is his sort of white whales he wants to get are like the 20 most valuable games. Um, and to sort of make his quite he does have a budget, but he's looking for loose games, meaning games not in the box with the manual, hmm. which cuts down on their price significantly. But uh, here's a question. Do you know the number one uh, the Nintendo game that's worth the most? Wasn't it like an Olympics game? Yeah, so um, I don't have the title of the game in front of me because I do so much pre-search, but uh, there was a game that had a pad that you ran on, and you would run on the pad, and it would make the guy move on the track and field on the screen, yeah. exercise pad. And this came out uh, originally by whatever party made that, or whatever company made that game, and then pretty quickly in the U.S., Nintendo had them pull it from the shelves and re-released it with the Nintendo license on it. Hmm. So they just put, they called it the Nintendo Power Pad instead of just the Power Pad. But I think it's called like something, I don't know, like Track and Field Olympics or something like that. But that is like, that goes in box at, at, at the time they made this documentary for like close to 10,000 bucks at times. Damn. Now the question is, is it worth playing if you have it? <laughs> I wouldn't think so because the the mass market version released uh, first party by Nintendo um, is the exact same thing. I did. Did you ever play that with the power pad where you're running on it and it makes the guy run? I played that once at a friend's house and I'm like, this this is okay. This is pretty novel, uh, but it was sort of a, a I think no more than one game really supported it. I I played uh, that quite a bit because the, the Nintendo that my family had, it had one cartridge that had Mario Duck Hunt and uh, the Power Pad, some Power Pad games on it. Mm. And part of the reason I played it a lot is that, one, I got really frustrated with how difficult the hurdles race was. That was the first game that I ever really resolved to beat but then also hung up when I realized the game just the power pad's not responsive enough to make beating the hurdle race possible. Uh, but then the other thing is with like the the regular race, the long jump, it came all about how can I use the power pad to get the craziest highest score without necessarily running on it. I see. Like under the right circumstances, you can hit those pads with your hands faster than you can hit them with your feet, uh, and you can get some crazy speed that way. Right. Um, oh, cool. What's uh, something else you've been watching? Uh, that's that's been uh, mostly it. well. Okay. Well, actually, uh, treading old ground, I did see I did see the new Rift Tracks live uh, Star Raiders: The Adventures of Saber Rain uh, this week. Is that an Italian science fiction movie or No, no, it's not. It is a it is a direct to streaming hyper low budget sci-fi movie starring Casper Van Dien. Uh and Oh, so somewhat recent. Yeah, it came out well they they actually make a joke about that where they where uh where Bill Corbett went on this whole thing, you know, you know, for a a film uh, released in uh, for a film released in 98, their CGI is not really that bad. You know, there's a certain vibrancy to it. They go, "Bill, this came out 18 months ago." And he goes, "Oh god, no." But like it's 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 one of those things where like like somebody, some the person who made it clearly had a vision, but not necessarily the skills to pull it off. Like there's clearly stuff going on that makes complete sense to to the 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 writer director of the movie, but none of that stuff translates to the screen well. So despite an opening CGI space battle that's pretty kinetic, though you can't tell who's who or what they're doing. Most of it is just the characters walking through uh, a forest in bad costumes uh, and really, really poorly choreographed gunplay. Uh, the jokes really aren't jokes. Uh, the story's barely a story. Uh, and it ends, it ends with like such, such sequel, blatant sequel setup. 
I almost want to see what a sequel would be. <laughs> okay. Um, but the riffing pretty, was funny, as yeah, always. Well, riffing can always help a bad movie if the riffing's done well, and those guys are always good at it. Um, well, very good. Um, let's do that sequel scene you were mentioning with the riveting dialogue. Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, this this scene, this is after... Uh, a, the the really poorly choreographed shootout in the parking garage where again the thugs from earlier in the movie are are uh, trying to sexually assault a man's wife in a van uh, and and Bronson follows her screams to the parking garage there's a shootout so this is afterwards after the, the thugs are all dead or have fled the scene and the police are interviewing uh, are interviewing the the woman's husband who where's he looks like a baggy pants comedian. <laughs> the suit he's wearing is so awful. It's like picnic. It's the same texture you get on those plastic picnic table covers. Ugh. But yeah, so it's him. It's him interviewing uh, what, the uh, inspector, Inspector Lieutenant Menkowitz from the Los Angeles Police Department. Okay. Um, do you want to play Menkowitz? Uh, sure, I can do Menkowitz. Okay, let's go. Let me get this straight. You and your wife were attacked by four muggers. Then all of a sudden, this guy comes out of nowhere and begins shooting, killing these two here, and you don't know what he looks like. He saved our lives, damn it. Where were you giving out parking tickets? I want a description of what the guy looked like. He was a very good citizen. I don't care. He was a killer. Yeah. Riveting. Pretty. Pretty much. That's that's the quality of the dialogue you're going to get in Death Wish 2. Okay, so um, do you have anything to plug, Mr. Thrasher? Um, just that by the time this episode drops, I will be in Columbus, Ohio at the Origins Game Fair. Come say hi to me there if you want to meet me in person. Uh, oh, actually, we've got a friend of the show who's uh, screening something there. Oh, uh, Eric McEver? Yeah, Eric McEver, he's got uh, one of his short films is in uh, the Origins Film Festival uh, that's going to be there. Let me see. He's actually, let me look up the time, uh, if you don't mind vamping a wee bit. Sure. Um, short film is Paleonaut. Um, he sent me a link to it a while ago. I need to actually watch it. I've been very behind on that. But it, I, I looked, I watched a bit of it. Uh, it's, it's won a lot of awards at different festivals. Um, has very, you know, crisp... Uh, Cinematography, very very sort of uh, high high contrast uh, look look to things. Very professional looking. Okay, here we go. It's going to be uh, airing Friday the fourteenth uh, at seven thirty p.m. So definitely check out Eric McEver's uh, Paleo Not if you're going to be the Origins Game Fair. Also check out some of the events I'm running uh, with Kettlefish Productions. Uh, Oh gosh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun convention, but it's also gonna put me a little bit behind on movies. I'm not really gonna get a chance to see anything until I get back. Uh, but I am definitely looking forward to it. Also, I do have a new publication out, uh, 100 Oddities for a Pilgrimage Trail, uh, which was published uh, by Skirmisher Publishing. That came out just a few days ago, uh, as of this recording. Uh, it's all. Uh, it, it sort of takes the idea of the holy pilgrimage, but recasts it in fantasy role-playing game terms, and it's all 100 unique items, encounters, and strange people that you could meet on a pilgrimage trail in your standard fantasy setting. Well, on the pilgrimage trail, that's sort of the classical place you can run into NPCs and so forth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, pretty cool. And also attract um, the ire of the gods. <laughs> right. I have a, a book coming out later this year that I can't quite talk about yet uh but um i'm working on the audio book for that so that's we want to do a simultaneous release of the audio book and the uh physical copy digital copy of the book whatever um, cool so I've, I've been working on on that so look forward to that more details on that when uh i get that stuff done um set aside your pre-order money now so it's ready to go when actual pre-orders open up that's right. I did claim my author page on Amazon, and I was... Nice. To, have you done that yet? It's a pretty easy process. No, I guess I should. Yep. Although it's, uh, it's difficult for me, because despite my insistence that I always be credited as William T. Thrasher, that hmm. doesn't always happen. <laughs> well, uh, you mind if we talk about that for a second? I'm just sort of curious. Why the the full 
thing with the middle, the full name with the middle initial. I just, I, I guess it's two reasons. One, I feel like it, I just feel like it sounds better. Um, uh, and like Thr- Thrasher sounds like a fake last, as cool as it is, it sounds like a fake last name, but giving it a middle initial makes it seem, at least to my ear, a bit more grounded. Uh, but, but two, the middle initial is important to me because, uh, it's, uh, Tolliver. That was my, uh, that was my, uh, maternal grandfather's last name that name is not really getting carried on by 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 my side of the family and so it's kind of important to me to keep that even if only as a middle initial to keep that in uh, circulation it also makes me think of how a lot of uh, you know science fiction and fantasy authors have some kind of middle initial yeah in a lot of, middle initials are big uh in science fiction ee e. doc smith Arthur C. Clark. <laughs> exactly. Isaac Q. Asimov. Oh, wait. Douglas Splunge Adams. Yeah. Um, Piers P.P. Anthony. C.J. <laughs> <laughs> Carella. Right, um, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about Death Wish 3. What else? Also, a theme song written and performed by Mark with a C. Check him out at markwithac.com. And you can also listen to us uh, on Stitcher, um, listen to us on the whatever podcast app you choose. Um, especially if you're on the Apple Podcast app, uh, please leave a review. We haven't had a review in a while. We would like to see more of those. It's always fun to hear um, from our listeners. Yeah, I got. I, I've been meaning to take a look at take a look at some of those reviews. It's been a while since I've read them. Give me something new to read, folks. If Thrasher something new to re- read, please leave a review to <laughs> tickle his fancy. Um, that is our appeal. Yeah. So for sequel cast two, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. Same. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>